Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. You all know me. I'm Jake Rome. Today's show is an interview with Richard Rothstein. Richard Rothstein is the author of The Color of Law, a book that has been implemented in a new diversity training program at Loyola University School of Law. And we were really excited to have him on the show. I do hope you enjoy this interview. I don't come off great the entire interview, but if you just stick with it, you will find that we actually agree on more than it may appear. I'm really just asking him questions to get the best possible interview. So anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy, and give it up for the great and powerful Richard Rothstein. And welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. Richard and I are here today with Richard Rothstein. He is the author of The Color of Law. Mr. Rothstein, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, so uh, why don't we just start with laying out what your main thesis for The Color of Law is, how you came to arrive at this topic, and then maybe if you uh, would like, go into a little bit of what the research process was like for that. The thesis of the book is that the notion of de facto segregation is a myth, the idea that residential segregation in every metropolitan area is created by accident, uh, by private prejudice, by the action of actors in the private economy, um, as distinct from other forms of segregation, uh, such as that of public facilities and schools and colleges that were created by government. <laughs> what the book shows is that uh, the segregation, the residential segregation of every metropolitan area in this country was created and reinforced, um, perpetuated, by explicit racial policy on the part of the federal, state, and local governments. These policies were as much a violation of constitutional rights as the other forms of segregation that we abolished in the 20th century. And because residential segregation is the product of government action, not simply of private prejudice, uh, it uh, is, as I say, a violation of civil rights and requires a remedy. Uh, it, it, obligates us to remedy it. It's not that private prejudice wasn't involved. Of course, private individuals demanded uh, in many cases that government act discriminatorily. But the Bill of Rights exists to place an obligation upon government to resist those kinds of demands. So the fact that there was private prejudice involved doesn't make this a form of de facto segregation any more than the fact that a white uh, uh, Patrons of restaurants in the South might have preferred to have segregated restaurants before they were um, prohibited. Uh, there's always a, a private discrimination, private bigotry that lies behind government action to violate civil rights. But that doesn't make it a non-public activity when the government acts to do so. I was looking over your CV a little bit, and it looks like this has been a topic that has been a long-running interest for you. What made you think that you know, this needs to be put in writing in one succinct volume. And then what was the research process like? Because just the amount of evidence you have is staggering in the book. And there's really no other book out there like it documenting so fine-tuned the amount of government action that was 
leading to discriminatory housing problems out there. Well, I spent many years studying education policy. That was my field of expertise. I wrote about education policy for the Economic Policy Institute, the research institute with which I was affiliated. I was the education columnist at the New York Times for a while. I was concerned about segregated schools. I was convinced that school segregation was an underlying cause of much of the achievement gap that education policymakers dwell so much on. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, I had to determine uh, why schools were segregated if I wanted to make recommendations about how to desegregate them. And it's obvious that schools today are segregated uh, because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. The schools, in fact, today are more segregated than at any time in the last 45 years. And that's because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. The Supreme Court uh, had prohibited uh, school districts from embarking upon very modest school desegregation plans that were racially explicit uh, on the grounds that, uh, as I said, the schools were segregated because the neighborhoods they were located were segregated. But the Supreme Court uh, had concluded that neighborhoods were segregated de facto, and therefore there was nothing you could do to desegregate schools. I came up against this argument uh, in 2007 when the Supreme Court in its parents-involved decision prohibited the school districts of Louisville and Seattle from implementing a very token school desegregation plan. Uh, the court, John Roberts, Chief Justice, wrote the controlling opinion, and he said that the reason that Louisville and Seattle had to be prohibited from uh, taking race into account and trying to desegregate their schools was because the school segregation rested on de facto neighborhood segregation and something that was not permitted uh, to remedy. And I knew from um, past reading about uh, some instance in Louisville, Kentucky, for example, uh, when a, a white homer, homeowner in an all-white suburb of Louisville sold a home to a, a, an African-American, and when he did so, uh, the, uh, the African family moved in and a mob surrounded the home, uh, protected by the police. The mob threw rocks through the windows and uh, uh, firebombed and dynamited the home. When the riot was all over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, jailed, and uh, with a 15 year sentence, the, a, um, the white homeowner for selling a home to a black family uh, on the grounds of sedition. And I said to myself, this doesn't sound much like de facto segregation. And I began to wonder if this was an isolated incident or if there were more cases of government intervention, whether in the judicial system or otherwise, to maintain racial boundaries. That's how I began the work that led to this book. It is comprehensive, but um, it's not new. Uh, the subtitle of my book is A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. I didn't discover much in this book that hadn't been well known when it was being done. Uh, we've forgotten it all, uh, but the families, for example, who benefited from uh, uh, moving into all white suburbs uh, at the, with the uh, subsidy of the Federal Housing Administration knew that they were moving into a racially exclusive place, that the, their homes had deeds that prohibited uh, sale to African-Americans or resale to African-Americans. This was not hidden when the public housing uh, program of the mid-20th century uh, was created and often segregated neighborhoods that had previously been integrated. 
the families who moved into all white or all black uh, projects knew that they were moving into racially segregated uh, uh, projects. So there's nothing hidden about this. Um, I, I relied a lot on secondary sources. Um, I did a little bit of original research, but it wasn't necessary because it's all been written before. What hasn't been done, and as you say, my book is unusual in this respect, and that is I bring together uh, a lot of history um, of different aspects of housing policy, uh, different cities that haven't been uh, brought together before. So there are uh, works, uh, studies done in the past about, for example, uh, the use of the police as an example I gave in Louisville, the courts, the judicial system to enforce racial segregation. There are books written about the uh, the use of the Federal Housing Administration to create all-white uh, segregated suburbs from, Af from which African Americans were excluded. Uh, there are books written about the public housing program and its role in segregating country. Uh, but these are all uh, works that focused on aspects of the system. And uh, what I tried to do was bring them all together to show that these policies interacted, interlocked, to create a very powerful system of state-sponsored racial segregation. I mean, certainly when you read the book, you are left with the feeling page after page of just the question in your head is, how have I never really heard of most of this? So I'm of the opinion that you do provide a lot of evidence for to support your thesis in the book. But I, I remember when you spoke at Loyola a few months ago, you you made this offhanded remark about how banks could have never have pulled off or created this type of segregation on their own without the assistance of some of these racial policies that were, or racist policies that were promulgated by the Federal Housing Authority. And when you said that, it made me think of uh, Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, where he sounds the alarm against the dangers of centralized planning and extols the virtues of diffuse systems of knowledge. And he talks about the potential for corruption or dispossession when societies are managed from the top down. So my question is, given the government's prominent role in creating these racial disparities that we see today, uh, should we be really be looking for the government to fix these problems? Is there a solution or a fix through the private market? And is, is there any credence to the idea that a smaller government with less power, maybe we would be further along the path towards racial equality today? I don't think there's any basis for that uh, conclusion. Uh, the, um, for example, the, the, the one case that you alluded to, uh, the suburbanization of the country. Um, developers across the country in the mid-20th century built giant suburbs uh, to um, lure uh, white families in the post-war, post-World War II housing crisis into single-family homes in these suburbs. The most famous of these, uh, your listeners are probably familiar with it, is Levittown, east of New York City. That was 17,000 homes. Uh, no bank would have uh, lent uh, someone like Levitt the money to build 17,000 homes for which he had no buyers, a purely speculative venture. The only way that Levitt could get those loans was by getting a bank guarantee for his uh, government guarantee, Federal Housing Administration guarantee for a bank loan to buy the land, to finance the construction. That's how Levittown and thousands of developments like that were built with this Federal Housing Administration guarantee. Well, those homes in the mid-20th century sold for about $100,000. Uh, the bank guarantee that the Federal Housing Administration issued uh, for Levitt uh, required him never to sell a home to an African-American. 
It even uh, required him to place a deed in every home, prohibiting resale or rental to African-Americans. White families uh, left urban areas under this explicit racial program of the federal government into all white suburbs. The homes in those days uh, sold for about today's currency, about $100,000. Today, homes in Levittown sell for $300,000 to $500,000. The um, white families who moved into those homes uh, gained over the next few generations wealth from the appreciation of those homes, equity in their homes. They used it to send their children to college. They used it to um, take care of medical or um, other uh, temporary unemployment emergencies. They use it to subsidize their retirements. Uh, they use it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren who then had uh, funds for their own down payments for homes. Uh, as a result of all this, African-Americans, of course, were prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating policy. As a result of all this, today, while African-American incomes on average are about 60%, 60% of white incomes, Average American, African-American wealth is about 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy. That wealth disparity underlies much of this racial inequality we have in this country today. It causes most of our underlying social problems. Uh, the achievement gap is how I started. It results in large part from in schools, from the fact that we have schools that concentrate the most disadvantaged low-income children in single schools. Uh, the segregation that the wealth gap perpetuates causes our most serious health crises. Uh, public health experts are concerned about the shorter life expectancies for African Americans, higher rates of heart disease. It all comes from living in segregated, uh, more polluted neighborhoods, less high-quality neighborhoods. Uh, the certainly the the criminal justice crises that we have, uh, mass incarceration, dis- disproportionately African American youth comes from our concentrating young men. Uh, the, the the most serious social disadvantages, less access to jobs and transportation in single neighborhoods. So all of these problems stem from racial segregation. They're perpetuated by the wealth gap that the federal government policy created. I don't know how. The private sector, uh, private market government stepping out of the way is going to uh, erase or even uh, remediate in small part that wealth gap. It's going to take uh, government action to remediate the policies that past governments uh, uh, implemented. So uh, I hear this often. Conservatives say the government should step out of the way. This will take care of itself. It's a a nice little um, uh, hope. But how is the government how is the government stepping out of the way going to enable the wealth gap between African Americans and whites to narrow a gap that was, I say, unconstitutionally created by public policy? So Mr. Rossing, the I guess the obvious follow up to what you just said would be what would a government enforced remedy look like, in your opinion? Well, the remedies are very easy to develop. What's hard is developing the political will to implement them. We could, for example, as even the bill before Congress now that proposes this, uh, we could subsidize with public funds the movement of African Americans uh, into suburbs that are now unaffordable, but that um, were certainly affordable to them uh, at the time that white families were subsidized to move into these 
developments. And this this would have to be done with public funds. There's no private solution to this problem. Uh, there are many other policies we could follow. We currently continue to uh, subsidize the um, uh, single-family homes and in many all-white suburbs with, for example, the mortgage interest deduction. That's an ongoing subsidy to suburbs that renters, predominantly African-American in many urban areas, don't have. Uh, that the subsidy could be leveraged to uh, incentivize those uh, communities to um, desegregate. Uh, we could uh, prohibit uh, exclusive white suburbs from uh, maintaining zoning ordinances that uh, prohibit the, um, the construction of anything but single-family homes on large lot sizes that prohibit the, uh, smaller single-family homes or townhouses or even scatter site public uh, uh, housing. Uh, all of these policies are, are within reach. They're all uh, easily easy to develop. What's difficult is developing the political bill to uh, enact them, uh, partly because there's no understanding of the government's role in creating this problem. And as long as there's no understanding of the government's role creating this problem, as long as we believe that uh, segregation happens, happened by accident, it's easy to come to the conclusion that can only be fixed by accident. I, I guess I don't want to get too far off track, but I will follow up to that a little bit. And that, so I have strong libertarian inclinations. So I'm always skeptical when I hear that more subsidies or throwing more money behind a problem is necessarily going to lead to the outcomes that we desire. That's not to say that it, it couldn't. Part of it too is that the single motherhood rate in the African-American community is three times that amount of in the white community. So having a single income household is necessarily going to confer different difficulties onto a community than if you had a two-parent income household. What, what do you think the antecedents of that are, if you have any idea? And then there's also a trove of evidence about consumption habit differences in between black and white communities where African-Americans are more likely to spend money on conspicuous items such as cars, watches, clothing, that also leads to some income disparities or uh, accrued generational wealth disparities. Uh, the, the, the things you just described were not courageous um, descriptions on your part. Uh, they were an excuse for confronting the problems that we face. Uh, nobody is suggesting that uh, there's only one problem in the society, and that's government uh, uh, role in, in creating segregation. But it is ludicrous to say that the wealth gap uh, between African Americans and whites has been created in significant significant extent by differences in, in purchasing habits by buying cars or watches. Uh, that's absolutely absurd. Of course, there are differences in, in consumption habits. There are many differences between many groups in the society. But the notion that differences in consumption habits is what created the wealth gap between African Americans and whites is, as I say, totally absurd. I'm sure you're aware of what the causes of the uh, the preponderance, uh, uh, disparate, not preponderance, but the disparate uh, uh, impact of uh, single-family, single-parent households is in this country by race. Of course, we know that single-parenthood uh, is rising very rapidly in white among white families. Uh, uh, it's not rising rapidly among African-Americans. In fact, it's pretty stable. Um, and nobody is suggesting, I don't think, that because single-parenthood is rising among white families, that therefore... Uh, we should uh, somehow abandon white families and the supports that we give to them uh, in this country uh, 
through various subsidies, as such as the ones I described before. The, the history of single parenthood uh, uh, in this country of African Americans is well known. It started off in, in under slavery, when uh, families were purposely broken up uh, by slaveholders. Uh, that is something. It's a legacy of slavery, which uh, created different patterns in, in both black and white uh, communities. Uh, a much bigger cause of it uh, was the the, um, the the concentration through the government policies that I described to you earlier of African Americans in communities where there were few jobs available, little transportation available to those jobs in urban areas. Um, it is marriage, as you know, is an economic institution. It's not just a um, uh, a romantic institution. It's primarily an economic institution, and it's very difficult to maintain a high marriage rate if you've deprived uh, men, in particular, of the opportunity to earn income. Uh, there have to be marriageable males available. If we're incarcerating large percentages of um, males, if we are uh, denying them the opportunity to get decent income, it's very hard to sustain a high marriage rate. And finally, the, the marriage rate, the disparate uh, difference between um, uh, single parented and African-American and white families is an ongoing um, uh, consequence of, of white bigotry. Uh, intermarriage in this country uh, is growing across all racial groups, um, but one exception. Uh, Af among all other groups, whether it's whites and Hispanics or Asians or any other immigrant group or uh, Jews, Italians, interracial intermarriage rates are growing. In every one of these groups, every one of these groups, the rate between of, of men and women in uh, intermarrying with, with members of other groups is roughly equal, except among African Americans. Among African Americans, uh, the marriage rate between uh, black women and white men is far lower than the rate of intermarriage between um, uh, black men and white women. So uh, that's another aspect of this problem. In any event, in any event, whatever private uh, uh, causes you may attribute to uh, the problems that we face, uh, the, under our Constitution, uh, you have no uh, right to tell the government that it should hold off remedying its own conduct until everybody behaves in what you consider a perfect fashion. But we have an obligation under the Constitution to remedy constitutional violations, and that uh, rem that obligation does not hold off until everybody behaves in what you consider an appropriate manner. Once the government acts in a constitutional fashion, then it's appropriate to begin to talk about the other issues you talked about, even if they were valid. Yeah, I know. I wasn't trying to suggest that those were actually my beliefs. I mean, those are just the counter arguments that you hear out there. And I didn't want to squander the opportunity to ask you about them. But I, I agree that there are a lot of things that I mean, even today, like here in the city of Chicago, we have the tax increment financing program where we basically siphon off property taxes from low income communities and then send that money up north towards Michigan Avenue to buy build a new sidewalk. So to, like so, I mean, there there are examples of why this continued disparity is still at the hands of local and city and municipal government. But. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to give you the impression that I believe that buying watches is what's attributable to generational wealth gap. Richard, do you have a question? Yeah, since we did just, yeah, I think this is a good way to pivot. Since we did just start on uh, maybe touching on taboo uh, 
language, I wanted to address, you mentioned the, uh, you, you specifically used the words uh, ghettos in your book instead of you know, low income communities or things like that and, and how tiptoeing around actually addressing the problem is causing the, and I may have been reading your book, I may have been interpreting your book incorrectly, but how tiptoeing around what the uh, the language that we're using is actually perpetuating part of the problem. And I just wanted to know if you wanted to see if you could touch a little bit on that and how we're, we're not facing this crisis head on. Well, sure. I, I think what you're referring to is the argument I make that we can't solve a problem if we refuse to face it. Uh, the term ghetto is a term that refers to um, uh, a, a group uh, or, or an area where a, a racial or an ethnic group is concentrated and where there are bars to exit. It didn't start with African-Americans in this country. It started with Jews in Europe. That's where the term ghetto originated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have use of euphemisms that uh, uh, protect us from facing up to this. Uh, so we, instead of calling them ghettos, we call them inner city neighborhoods. But uh, when white middle-class families move into uh, uh, predominantly black, low-income neighborhoods, we get to gentrify them. We don't start calling them inner-city families. It's only a euphemism that we use to avoid uh, confronting what we're talking about. The same thing is true with the term people of color, which has become fashionable in order to avoid confronting the fact that this country has a unique history of failing to deal with the legacies of slavery, uh, there are certainly other groups, Hispanics, who have suffered discrimination in this country and who sometimes continue to suffer discrimination. <laughs> but their history and the legacies of past policies that uh, apply to Hispanics are nowhere near as severe as those that apply to the descendants of former American slaves uh, and a whole series of, of policies that we've never dealt with and that we've never remedied. We can't remedy them if we don't recognize them. So I'm curious about your thoughts on human progress and how we balance the narrative between, you know, how far we have come and how much progress we have made, but then how we are still living with the old vestiges of just horrific and discriminatory practices and that those are still observable in the world around us. I mean, how do we confront these two competing narratives that are sort of at attention and I feel like if we focus on too much on one and not the other, then we're forced to just become complacent or nihilistic. But it, how do you, how do you think about human progress and um, how we pr should propel ourselves forward? I don't see uh, that this is a, a problem. Of course, there have been many ways in which we continue to make progress. That doesn't excuse us from addressing the places where we're not making progress and where problems still exist. In many respects, of course, the condition of African-Americans in this country is um, improved from the way it has been in the past. There's no uh, doubt about that. It would be absurd to, claim other, absurd to claim otherwise. But that doesn't excuse us from continuing to address the ongoing effects of um, past uh, policies that were violations of civil rights and that um, continue to hold back additional progress that uh, we should be making. So I don't see that the, in order to um, enact policies to correct past wrongs, we have to pretend that no progress has ever been made before. Of course it has. Um, and we have a 
a black middle class today that uh, is uh, more prosperous and more influential than any time in previous history, American history. That's progress. But we also have, as I say, ongoing inequality that's largely uh, the product of government uh, policy that uh, was discriminatory, that was a violation of civil rights, and that still requires remedy. Um, so I, I kind of want to turn back to something you said a little bit earlier about political will. And that made me think about how only about 40 years after we interned Japanese Americans in this country, we were able to pass legislation that essentially amounted to reparations. And a lot of that had to do with the political climate at the time. Ronald Reagan was very sympathetic towards, he, he even attended the funeral and delivered a eulogy at the uh, funeral of a Japanese American who was interned, but then went on to fight in the war. So a lot of stars had to kind of align for that perfect moment to be presented to fix a past injustice. What do you think we're missing out of our uh, current political climate that is preventing a lot of the these uh, policies that you would like to see enacted? Well, uh, something's missing. We need um, a new civil rights movement. I'm hopeful that one will grow and develop in order to address this last remaining vestige of racial segregation in our country, which is residential segregation. Uh, there's, there's no way to predict when uh, that civil rights movement become powerful enough to enact and to force the enactment of new policies in the past civil rights movements uh, were based not simply on understanding better the history of oppression, but also on litigation and legislation and marches and demonstrations and civil disobedience. I can't uh, see into the future. I don't know when, if or when, uh, that will happen to correct these problems. But I do know that we're in this country today. We're having a more honest and passionate discussion about race, uh, the legacies of slavery, the history of discrimination than we've ever had in this country before. It's not just the the uh, surprising and to me at least uh, astounding attention that my book has gotten, but other books uh, like this have also gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, uh, Brian Stevenson's uh, book, Just Mercy, uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Uh, there's a lot of attention to these topics. We elected a an African-American president, and then followed that by uh, electing a white supremacist president. That has exposed a lot of uh, exposed a lot of discussion of race in this country that we haven't had before. So I'm hopeful that um, we will continue and um, a new civil rights movement will emerge, but I can't predict when it will happen. I actually wanted to touch a little bit on that. You mentioned Brian Stevenson. I'm actually from, I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, the new lynching memorial and museum i think is one of the if not the best example i can think of of at least my hometown and state confronting head-on uh the atrocities that we've committed i wanted to uh ask you do you see with including that other examples of where i know you mentioned we're in the right we're starting to have the right conversations other examples of um, us actually confronting our history of basically a, a what has been called de facto segregation, but you pretty much debunk. I don't know if you could touch on that. Well, I, I, as I say, I, 
I gave some examples, the attention to various books that uh, are touching on this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just the memorial to uh, lynching in the South. We have white elected politicians uh, across the South uh, uh, removing statues that commemorate uh, slavery and the defenders of slavery. Uh, I'm sure that you've read the speech that Mitch Landrieu gave, the mayor of New Orleans, uh, upon the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee. It's among the most eloquent descriptions of uh, our race problems in this country that uh, has been given anywhere. Uh, And uh, that's an example of uh, a new awareness of this history that is growing slowly. All right, Mr. Rothstein, I'm mindful of the fact that you're home with your family right now. So I I don't have any further questions. Richard, do you have anything else you want to ask? Uh, A little there. I did want to ask you uh, some state sponsored segregation that you mentioned. Um, I, there was a article in the in New York Times Magazine about a year and a half ago about the resegregation of Jefferson County in Birmingham, and I know you touched a little bit about on this about the how basically instead of integrating schools, the neighborhoods seceded into cities, and I didn't know if you. Uh, um, with with things like that where there are separate now separate cities how could you, how could a government remedy how could you fix that through government remedy without essentially people giving up their townships well townships are uh, a, a creature of, of state policy mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me quite obvious that if uh, a, a political jurisdiction is redefined for racial purposes, that uh, that should be prohibited um, and uh, litigation should prohibit it. There are a number of cases like that going on in various parts of the country. Um, and uh, they're subject of litigation and should be subject of litigation. I'm not suggesting that every one of those cases will be won, but uh, it should be stopped at the Supreme Court in 2015 issued a decision in which it expanded the uh, uh, definition of uh, disparate impact violations under the Fair Housing Act. That um, uh, theory can be used to challenge some of these policies. I'm not suggesting it will always be successful. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we, we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Succinct, direct person I think I've ever spoken to. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously he's given harder interviews than dialogue to Novo. <laughs> but he, you ask him a question, and you, I was expecting him to, you know, give a in-depth, longer, and it was just straight to the point, exactly, and where you didn't really need any more information. It was right. pretty great. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and he made really short work of all of our questions. <laughs> like, I thought that, like, because I'd put some time and thought into those questions, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a good talking point, and he was just like, oh, I don't see any evidence for that. <laughs> and then 
there was, of course, that hiccup where I came off looking like a white supremacist for a short period of time. Not great. I, <laughs> yeah, I, you did. You did mention, you know, these aren't my views. These are just the counter arguments that you hear and yada, yada, yada. But uh, uh, yeah, that was it was uh, I. I want to sit with him for an hour and just let him go and just hear him talk for and whatever he comes out of his mouth. I'm sure it would be brilliant, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, definitely a big get for the show. Mm-hmm. It was a, a lot of fun. A lot of planning went into this. Uh, we met him back in, I think, October or maybe it was early November yeah. when he came and spoke at the school. And this has been in the pipeline since. But yeah, this was exciting. I hope that listeners enjoyed it. I mean, I, I what do you ask somebody who spent obviously thousands of hours researching a subject when right and we read a book right we read a book (laughs) that he wrote so he wrote so he obviously knew how to navigate the facts a little bit better than us but that was a lot of fun he took time out of his schedule he's home with his family right now too so that was a a big thing for him to do for us too Mm -hmm. yeah i mean what what other thoughts came to your mind during that yeah I, i the uh it was a little funny hearing him talk about how far we've come. We just elected a you know a African American president, and then follow and then he immediately calls Trump a white supremacist. Yeah, right. That was a little. <laughs> I started dying. Uh, I was yeah. It, it threw yeah it threw me off for a second, but again, he doesn't right. seem to mince words. No, That's right, what right, he believes, right, so. right, right. Yeah, definitely a formidable intelligence uh, that mm-hmm. guy, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I really hope he doesn't think I'm a white supremacist. But like, you, do you get what I mean? Like, where, I hope he does. Uh, <laughs> like, you do. You don't want to waste the opportunity to ask somebody with that level of knowledge the common counter arguments you hear out there. You, yeah. like, you know, regardless of whether or not you personally believe them, I thought that that was an appropriate move. Hopefully, the listeners agree with me on that. But uh, right, we'll see. One thing I would have liked to follow up with, which I think is pretty obvious, and he doesn't really. We didn't really need him to dive deeper into it was when he talked about how african-american families on average uh, earn 60 percent of what white families on average earn uh-huh. and how the uh the net worth of the families are you know i think he he said it 10%. was yeah it, it was it was 10 percent of that of white families average yeah they yeah. so it's a yeah they're they're earning 60 percent, but they're yeah so it's that's a 90 percent gap and the obvious question would have been, is that because the 60% goes towards living expenses and then, yeah, and they wouldn't have savings, which is the obvious right. yes. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because yeah, you already said that African Americans are more likely to rent than own homes. So I right. think that that's probably a reasonable assumption to make. But yeah, I mean, there are things I could have asked him, but it, it, it seems like to him, the questions are so rote because he's heard them a hundred times you know mm-hmm. and written I, what the questions are so written not what wo- wrote you know like woke what <laughs> the, the correct word was written is that the past tense of wrote Be, never mind r-o-t-e <laughs> as in oh yeah Ooh, i'm curveball. keeping this in that one's on me <laughs> that one's on me sometimes i'm wrong it'll probably happen again right but yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad that we had this opportunity. Definitely, like I like I said, you can tell that he's fielded all these questions in the past and that uh, he just knows what he's talking about, you know? Yeah. And uh, 
I'm always resistant to these ideas that there are big government conspiracies to oppress a certain population. I mean, obviously there are historical examples, but it's hard to... If you read his book, hard to dispute. Hard to dispute, and it... The thing that really strikes you when you're reading the book is just how recent all of this stuff is. Right. You know, within my parents' lifetimes, and it it really causes you to, to take pause and think like, okay, there's no rational reason to believe that some of this isn't still going on. You know, we, we yeah. like to, I like to trumpet the idea that we live in the freest society in the history of humanity, which is true, yeah. but that's not to say that it's perfect. And there are definitely places where we need to be directing more attention. And, and also when you read the book, the other thing that's so striking is how bipartisan racism is. You know, like there were Democratic politicians, there were Republican politicians, all making this machine work you know, he going came, to, yeah. Yeah. came right out of the gate and talked about the one of the first things he mentions is the segregation of San Francisco. Right. And then says if it can happen in liberal San Francisco, it can happen anywhere. Right. And, and you have to and you're left with the feeling that, like, OK, it must be. Yeah, you know, it must be. Sure. And I'm, I brought up the TIF program and that's something I brought up on the program before. But that's the that's the best example I can think of in the city of Chicago in our own backyard. We are going into really impoverished neighborhoods like Englewood, Longdale we're setting their property taxes as a baseline and then anything that goes up above that baseline in property taxes is funneled off and it's supposed to go to Chicago public schools and it's supposed to go to uh, building businesses in those communities. Instead, Mm -hmm. it all gets funneled up north to the loop and Michigan Avenue, the already most affluent and wealthy areas of the city. Mm. So that is something that I wish uh, there was better attention on. Yeah. And uh, I actually was talking with Mary Bird uh, professor at Loyola University of Chicago. Anybody who's ever met Mary Bird will know who Mary Bird is. Uh, great lady. And we were talking about actually putting on a forum to raise attention about that TIF program in the U. It's not a sexy topic. That's the only problem. You know, people hear property taxes and they're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Yeah. You know, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's the it's like campaign finance. Is it right. a problem? Yes. But <laughs> no one wants to talk about right. campaign finance. Right. Exactly. Except recently. Yeah. Uh, right. But I, yeah. So when I. Well, I knew we were going to interview him when I was reading the book, and my just mentality when that happens is I'm looking for holes. Right. What to pick through to ask him about, and I would come up with something, and then... The next chapter, right? Not <laughs> the next chapter. It would be uh, two, three pages later, he right. would he would hit me with five examples of exactly what I wanted, and we are like, oh, okay. It's a, it's a, like... It's very, very well researched. Yeah, yeah. and no book is 100% unimpeachable, but... His is damn near close. And he even said during his uh, speak at his talk at Loyola uh, that he's like, the book has been published for about a year and a half now. And I've not had anybody come to me and say that your facts are wrong. Yeah. Which is, which happens on these these kinds. Yeah. Well, a book of this scale, you would expect it to happen. But no, I mean, it was pretty airtight. And I I thought, I thought he was a great guest. You know. Right. I also, you know, then I guess one of the things that I was where he talks about these uh, housing programs and things like that in the 30s. And my thought was, well, I was, you know, 90 years ago. Right, how right. how has how, how have we not uh, kind of that the free markets kind of worked itself out since then. And then he goes into the extent of. Yeah, it was set up in the 30s, and then it was doubled down on in the 50s and the 70s. And, and it, right. it, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. For any uh, listeners who haven't read the book, uh, I can't recommend it more. It exists in audiobook format. You can get it on Amazon. 
it's really worth your time. It's not an extremely long book. It's it's very manageable, even if you're a law student with your with your regular course load, and uh, it it definitely is impactful, and it, it's humbling too because. I think we as law students and law professors like to walk around and think that we know everything and have all the answers, but this is a problem for our generation to tackle. So uh, really can't recommend the book enough. Agreed. And, you know, if any other Amazon bestsellers want to come on the podcast, open invitation. That's you, Jonathan Haidt. We, we, don't, <laughs> we don't really care what your book is. If you're an Amazon bestseller, come on. We'll talk about it. We'll read it. Come on. <laughs> well, I'll buy the audio book, but yeah, right. Jake will read it. Great, uh, <laughs> great way to boost your sales by at least two people. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah. Well, so, you know, I, uh, I, I, yeah, that was fascinating. I'm glad we got to do it. Yep. All right. We will be back next week with a brand new interview for your listening pleasure. Once again, we're Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz, and we're just as surprised as you are that we're back before the federal government is. <laughs> Keep the candle burning.